This morning we'll be reading from the ESV, Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that, whosoever, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions. 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm, no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote, Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thanks, Chris. We come to a story of the Bible which is fairly familiar. It's uh, probably one of the most familiar deliverance stories in the Bible, and there's uh, very few who have grown up in the church that haven't heard it at least a few times over. Daniel is likely in his 80s, maybe his mid-80s at this time, and he's still living and serving God. In fact, he has been serving God through the reign of seven kings. Few of them were actually quite brutal in their administrations. Three of them were murdered. Two kingdoms were underway, and Daniel is still serving God. It's been said in some place that few great men finish well. That's certainly not the case with Daniel. And in fact, I think Daniel epitomizes the words of the psalmist in Psalm 92, where the psalmist writes, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of God. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is all right or upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This account moves along at a fair pace. At least in the ESV version, the little word then is used 15 times and it almost sounds like an eyewitness account. Then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it just moves it along in a logical sequence and in an orderly pace. And there's three things that I want to talk about and a fourth that I hope will lead to praise and thanksgiving in your heart. But just things that are contained in this text that give us some understanding maybe of Daniel's world and the world that we live in. The first is simply the clash between two kingdoms. We find it here on the pages of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, and it's the reality of our life. There is a war that is being waged between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. And we see it worked out in this text in a few different ways. We're now in the Medio Persian Empire, which is even more expansive than the Babylonian Empire. Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian, is on the throne, and his empire is needed to be administrated, and so he appoints over it 120 satraps. 
Over those 120 satraps, he appoints three men who will give leadership to them. It doesn't take long for us to see points of conflict, though, between these two kingdoms as it's worked out in the administration of the king. The first is that you see a clash of ethics. This is always the way it is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. There is a clash of ethics. You likely noticed why the king set up three governors. He did it because, as verse 2 says, so that he might not suffer loss. That's the reality of the kingdom of men, it seems. It's really the issue that gets the whole ball rolling in this particular text as well. It's primarily economic loss that's being referred to here. And we recognize that high office is no guarantee of high morals. The flesh exerts its power through the sin nature. And whether it's through entitlement or envy, jealousy or opportunity, the kingdom of man, uh, in the kingdom of men, economic loss is a very real problem. It happens today. Employees account for a significant level of theft in their places of work, from pencils to paper, from tools to supplies, from time to absenteeism, to fake bank accounts, to mortgage schemes. Seems like loss is something to be expected in the kingdom of man. And over this stands Daniel, trusted to such an extent that the king had a plan, whether it was public or not, we're not quite sure, but he had a plan that he would place Daniel over his whole kingdom because he saw in Daniel alone one who lived by a different ethic, one who served a different king. And you can read Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, and see there that even when we are not being watched by our earthly masters, we ought to serve our heavenly master well. And this is what characterized Daniel as he served the king. And so Daniel is trusted to a considerable intent. Two reasons are pointed out why Daniel was so stellar in his service. First, it's because he was faithful. He was faithful not only to God, but the text says he was faithful also to the king. He didn't skim. He didn't bribe. He didn't steal. He didn't cheat. He didn't pad his expenses. He didn't line his pockets. He didn't fudge the rules or look the other way when others did. Daniel was faithful in his service to the king. Secondly, the text also tells us that he had an excellent spirit in him. I think that that has to refer in some way to the Spirit of God who lived in him. It's what we read of in Galatians where we are filled with the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul says there, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It seemed to me that Daniel was a man that had an excellent spirit or the Spirit of God in him. And so you see... Part of what it is for Daniel and us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are about, as God's people, living in this world, bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the kingdom of men. And it's a different ethic. The second thing that we see that's taking place here within Daniel is there's two laws that are competing for each other. There's the laws of one kingdom over against the laws of another kingdom. I was even reading in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in my devotions this morning about Moses' parents who did not fear the edict of the king. They weren't afraid of Pharaoh who had said that any baby boy had to be delivered over to death. 
Rather, they made a little ark and they stuck him in the river and trusted God to protect him. They recognized that even in the Egyptian empire, there was this conflict between the kingdom of God and its laws and the kingdom of men and its laws. And so, where does the place of the law in the life of the man and woman of God? What place does the law of man have in governing our actions here on earth? We might not face this kind of an ethical dilemma as boldly as Daniel did, unless you're maybe um, TWU or some people that are being, trying to be made of examples in the public sphere. But we do face the laws of mankind in the kingdom of man in the places we work, on the sports teams that we play for, in our schools, in our country where certain things are forbidden or certain things are expected of us or certain ways of living are, are, are put before us and maybe not given articulation like they are in Daniel, but we understand that to move up, to get along, to get along with people that we work with, we have to bend certain things or follow a certain ethic. And so we find that for the follower of Christ, sometimes the laws of the kingdom of men put us at odds with the odds with the laws of the kingdom of God. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Uh, over against this law of the king, which you notice is referred to um, at least three times as a law that cannot be broken, it's referred to at least seven times as the law of the Medes and Persians, over against that there is the law of God. And you see that in verse 5, that the administrators meet amongst themselves and they say, listen, we can't find anything wrong with Daniel as it relates to the laws of men. That there should be a hint to us about the place of the laws of the kingdom of men in our lives. We ought to obey them. We ought to uphold them. And yet here it says that the only way we're going to trip him up is if we put the law of his God against the law of our land. And so that's what they do. Temptations to compromise will never go away. Until we breathe our last breath, every one of us is engaged in a battle. The Bible talks about Satan's strategies. And I wonder sometimes, are we ignorant of Satan's strategies? Paul tells us in Corinthians, don't be ignorant of Satan's strategies. Do you know the way Satan works in order to trip you up? Do you know the way that Satan works in order to make you give up your allegiance to God and, 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 and live in allegiance to man? Do you know the ways that he do, does those sorts of things? We need to be aware of those. It's interesting to me that one of the last things that Paul prays as he talks about putting on the armor of God is that one of the ways that we fight against the kingdom as men and the spiritual kingdoms all around us is prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit. And we'll see that this is Daniel's go-to method as he finds himself in this conflict. And so as we think about these tests that will come our way, it's interesting for us to also note that most of us will face the most significant tests in our lives as we get older, not when we start out. I think one of the truths is, is that as we go along the way, it's the little tests in life that prepare us for the big tests in life. And Daniel was to face probably one of the greatest tests of his loyalty to God when he was in his 80s, not when, he's, when he was in his 20s. And so there's really never a point in our lives where we can kind of sit back and say, I've got it made, I'm safe, I'm secure, there's nothing that will take me off course from my commitment 
to God. I think all through our lives, the advice that Solomon gives to, to um, parents about train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he was old, he will not depart from it is the same thing that God uses in us as his children. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read that God disciplines us as children. And one of the reasons he disciplines us is for godliness. And as he disciplines us, as we walk with him and as he grow with him, it's so that when we're old, we won't depart from his ways. And so we see that here in this text, that there is this conflict between the laws of men and the laws of God. Finally, there's a clash that takes place in our inner worlds, and we see it worked out at least in, in the hatred and the malice of these leaders versus the integrity of Daniel in this text. It's clear from the text that Daniel was faithful to the king. It's clear that there was nothing that they could find in him in which that they could call him before the king and said, he's not worthy of this promotion. Daniel understood the law and one part to be summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. He understood the king was his neighbor. He understood that part of the command of the kingdom of God was to work that out in relation with, the, with men in the kingdom of men. And so he was embracing this kingdom ethic of the commands of God, which was rooted in the character of God, which was revealed in the love of God to Darius and the kings he had served beforehand. But one commentator, I think, gets it right. As he summarizes the first nine verses of Daniel chapter 6, the heading of, 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 of his section on chapter uh, verses 1 to 9 is simply this, the world will hate you. I think we ought to understand this and reflect on this and wrap it around our heads because as we started out saying, the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God are opposed to each other. They're against each other. They are in conflict with each other. And these men were hostile towards Daniel, likely because he wouldn't join in their schemes with them. He wouldn't partake in their plans to skim a little bit here, to take a little bit there, to pad their pockets here. And so together, it says they agree to conspire against Daniel to have him murdered. It's not outright murder. They don't want to have blood on their hands, but it's murder by the system. It, it's murder in such a way that, that the law of Darius will be blamed. It's murder that Daniel himself will be blamed because after all, he could have chosen to obey this law, but he chose not to. He knew what the consequences were, and so his death is on his own hands. But nonetheless, they conspired to murder Daniel. There are any number of reasons why they hated him. You can find these in the text. Uh, no matter where you look in the Old Testament, there is this hatred towards Jews. And they said, listen, he's one of the Jews. He's in exile. He's not really one of us. He's not a Babylonian. And so their hatred for him was the fact that he was a stranger and he was a foreigner. And it's not unlike the hatred that people have around the world to those who are Christians. And in fact, in Acts, uh, you find it in the context of persecution where the people of God are first called Christians. It's not a complimentary term. It's a negative term. And so they hated Daniel because he was a Jew and an exile. I think they were jealous of him because of his promotion. It happens today. Whether you're a Christian or not, we just don't like it when people get promoted ahead of us, when, when they get something that we thought we should get. His giftedness caused him to stand out from the rest of them. God had blessed him in a unique way and qualified him to, to serve in ways that they hadn't been. 
He was impeccable in his loyalty to the king. And so he made their schemes vulnerable. He made them look bad. It's not that Daniel was doing it on purpose. He was doing it to please his God. But in pleasing his God, he rubbed the people around him the wrong way. And so their hatred welled up inside of them. Didn't Jesus warn his followers before they died? If you were of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's pretty clear. There is a, there is a, a hatred towards those who are Christians because they identify with God and not with them. These men couldn't discredit Daniel because he was faithful. So they came together by agreement. They lied about their unity. They used the king's naivety and pride against him. They designed a hate-inspired law that meant that for 30 days, no one could approach any god through any other mediator except the king. The next point is simply this, that prayer seems to be one of the most effective weapons that God has given us to survive this clash or this tension between the two worlds that we find ourselves in. No asking God for anything for 30 days. Ah, it'd be easy to come up with any number of excuses, would it not? In our own hearts and minds of how we could get around this one, well, I can just change my pattern just a little bit and I can do things in secret or, you know, after all, every time I, I drive my chariot around the city, I can be praying or maybe when I go for a little walk by myself, I'll, I'll pray to God, but I don't have to continue my same routine. I don't have to let them know that I'm actually praying to God. I'll give them sort of the idea that I'm not praying to God, the look, and so that I can make it by 30 days. And after all, if you read Daniel 9, the prayer of Daniel 9 takes place in the first year of Darius, which is about this same time. And what was Daniel praying about? He was praying about the restoration of the Jews back to Jerusalem. And so Daniel must have thought in his head, well, I don't want to miss that party. Like That's going to be a really big deal when we all get back to Jerusalem and, and we celebrate this, this homecoming. I can just fudge just for a little bit so that I don't miss that party. This was impossible for Daniel to do. He couldn't give up his commitment to God in order to conform to a legal requirement of mankind. I wondered, it wasn't me, somebody else got me wondering this, but would it make any substantial difference in the life of Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church? Or in your life or my life, if for some reason Satan inspired the politicians of our country to say that we couldn't talk to God for 30 days. You see, it was more than simply showing an attitude of loyalty to the Most High God that bothered these rivals. I suspect as they watched Daniel, they realized that God actually heard him. I think they realized that God actually answered his prayers. I think that they must have been aware that the faithfulness of Daniel was was, was something that was rooted in his relationship with the living God. 
And so we get a, just a glimpse of Daniel praying, and, and I'm really going to skip over this so quickly this morning. And I, I want to do it for a couple of reasons. I just want to cast you back on verses 10 and 11, and for you to just wrestle with, with Daniel praying. But I want you to do it in a way that is more, how can I learn from a man seasoned in prayer over 60 or 70 years? What can I learn from him about prayer? Not, I've got to pray like Daniel and fill yourself with all kinds of guilt because you don't measure up to Daniel's standard of praying. I don't think there's a person here today who is content with their prayer life. I think every one of us wishes that we would pray more consistently, more habitually, more regularly, more fervently. We don't need a, a hammer on our head to wake us up about that. But I think every one of us has a desire to learn and grow a little bit in prayer. So take time to consider Daniel's focus in prayer as he turns toward Jerusalem. What can you learn from that? Take time to think about his defiance in prayers. Even though he knew that a law had been passed, he still went about his regular habitual praying every day. Maybe take some time to think about the consistency of prayer in Daniel's life. Why would that be a help? What did that help him when it came to this particular situation in his life? Think about the content of his prayer as he prays with thanksgiving and petition and supplication. Just think about some of those things in your own life. Think about his posture. Does posture matter in prayer? Just think about how it might help your own prayer life. But you just take some time to do that. And just say, what can I learn, Father, about prayer from Daniel this week? Just before we leave this particular section, I want you to just think for a moment. I, I found it strange, and I was helped in my thinking here, but I found it strange in verses 16 to 19 that after Daniel is sentenced to the lion's den, what we find is the emphasis on the anguish of the king and almost nothing said about the sentence passed on Daniel. All we read is that Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, and then we read three verses or so of the king just struggling with himself and anxious in his heart and um, giving up all the normal pleasures that he would have in the night and his sleepless night. And I wonder if it is another reminder to us, as we have had all through the book of Daniel, about the helplessness of pagan religion about the helplessness of all the gods that we create in our lives to solve our problems when actually it push comes to shove. Here now, the king is absolutely helpless to intervene. He can't do anything. And it's like his advisor had been all along the way. They'd been unable to answer the response of the king. And so I thought, well, where do we put all our eggs? What basket of hope do we fill with all of our problems? Is it an advisor, a counselor, an expert, a doctor, a diet, a bank manager? If this is where your hope is placed, you are hoping in something or someone that will ultimately be unable to help you. It will ultimately be unable to deliver you from the problems and the situations that you find yourself in. As the psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save you. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans become nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord God. We sang it, the maker of heaven and earth. Maybe it just is meant to give us a contrast of Daniel, quietly, on his own, in the lion's den, praying before his God. The king in his palace, unable to do anything 
to bring about deliverance of Daniel. It's clear that Daniel had a better night than Darius did. And yet Daniel was in the lion's den and Darius was in a palace. Final point is salvation belongs to God. We see this clearly worked out in Daniel, the end of Daniel. I kept thinking in my head, this is how my head works, but I kept thinking of the American National Anthem as I read the first verses here. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? It says that before dawn, the king got up and he ran to the tomb, tomb, pit, whatever it might be. Did he really think that Daniel's God would be able to save him? And in his anguished cry, he asked Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve been able to rescue you from the lions? Where did that even come from? How did Darius even know that Daniel served the living God? What was going on in his head? Had he read the history books? Had he looked back over the, the accounts of the Babylonian kings and Belshazzar and, and Nebuchadnezzar and figured out that Daniel's God was something different from all their gods? I don't really know. But it seems that somehow he had a, a recognition that Daniel served a different God than he did. And of course, Daniel speaks. It must have been stunning. I don't know, but you know, you, you throw a guy in a den of lions that do nothing but devour and crush and eat, and they're hungry, and they haven't had a meal for a while. He spends the night in there, and you go and you sort of stand outside and say, Daniel, are you still alive? And all of a sudden, you hear this voice. Yes, my God has delivered me. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything wrong before you, O king. There's another example of the sovereignty of God. God even controls the natural instincts of animals. And that God in his purposes sent his angel to shut the mouths of those lions for a period of six or eight hours. And then when God withdrew his hand from those lions, they went back to doing what lions do. And the king offered up to them, according to Persian justice, these men, their families, and their wives. And then the king writes a decree. Amazing decree. It's fascinating to me that the first six chapters of Daniel, all but chapter five, ends on a note of praise to God. And here's Darius before the people sending out another one of these open letters that everyone is commanded to fear and reverence the God of Daniel, the living God, the eternal God, the everlasting kingdom. His power to save, his power to work miracles. It's a counter to the first decree that he had written, which probably was still in effect for the next 28 days. And so he writes another law to counter the first law that he'd been tricked into writing. Finally, we come to verse 28. It's a significant verse. It's really a verse that sums up the life of Daniel. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and I think it should be that is rather than and. But Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. I think they're the same person. There's diff different opinions, and you can find those, but that's at least how I see it. Do you understand that Daniel spent his whole life in exile? 
wife and I were talking about this last night, probably as a eunuch. He probably was made a eunuch when he was taken captive and he spent his whole life alone um, in the king's palaces or courts in exile. As far as we know, he never made it back to Jerusalem. He wasn't among the throngs of people that joined those that were part of the edict of Cyrus to go back and live in Jerusalem. And yet God preserved him unharmed and alive through the course of decades. Life in exile would never be easy, nor would it ever be home. And that's the same reality that each one of us live with today who are children of God. We live as exiles and strangers, foreigners here. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven, which one day God will take us to be there. But while we live here as exiles and strangers and foreigners, God is able to preserve us, to keep us safe, to use us, to fulfill his purposes through us, whether it's through our living or through our dying. And I think it's important for us to understand that because you go and you read Hebrews chapter 11 and you read that for not, not everyone, it turned out good like Daniel. Many were saved, many were delivered, many were raised up. But then you come to verse 36 of Hebrews 11 and it says others suffered. Some were sawn in two. Some were killed. Some went around in animal skins because of their faith and their confidence in God. See, I think as I've reflected on Daniel 6 that Daniel chapter 6 is a foreshadowing in history of the verdict that will finally pronounce on all those believers who have put their trust in Christ on the final judgment day. Daniel ultimately stood as those in Christ will ultimately stand because there will be nothing found in us blameworthy. We will find, be found faultless because of what Christ has done for us. And all unbelievers will be judged as those were who plotted against him and they will be cast into eternal damnation. On that last day, at that last day when God comes to judge the world, all those who are in Adam will be declared guilty and will share the fate of destruction that those evil conspirators faced, while all those who are in Christ will be found not guilty and will share in Christ's glory forever and forever. You see, the church has often looked at Daniel 6 and seen in it Christ. They've seen Christ foreshadowed in the events that swirled around Daniel here. And I think there's some value and benefit in that. You see, Daniel was falsely accused and he was brought before the king. He was, the king was unable to free him. So too Jesus was falsely accused and brought before the religious leaders and through Pilate in his day. And Pilate also sought unsuccessfully to release Jesus and let him go free. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die. And his body was placed in a tomb covered with a stone and sealed. And his situation, like Daniel, was unalterable by human intervention. Unlike Daniel, Jesus suffered death. Although innocent, he suffered the fate of one who was guilty. And there was no angel to come and comfort him. 
God was not heard by him. In fact, he was abandoned by God and suffered horribly for our sins, not his own. And yet Jesus' experience is also a foreshadowing of the final judgment and God's verdict. Because God's verdict was on Christ innocent. And God raised him from the dead. And because we are in Christ, that will be the verdict that is pronounced over us as well. And we will be raised with Christ on the final day. You see, when Daniel emerged from the pit or from the den, he came out by himself. When Christ emerged from the pit or the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty throng or company of people, joined to him in faith, redeemed from the penalty of sin and from the curse of death, to the point that whoever trusts in Jesus Whoever puts their faith in him for life will hear not guilty. You may go free. You see, we're an imperfect lot, aren't we? We stumble our way through this life that God has called us to live. I don't think there's many of us here, and I need to be careful, but I don't know how many of us here are of the caliber of Daniel. We seem to fail more often than we would like. But all of us are beautiful in Christ. All of us are perfect in Christ. It's an amazing truth that our, our goodness before God is not rooted in the works that we do and the goodness of our lives, so to speak, our acceptance before God is rooted in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. My salvation and your salvation rests not on our ability to be like Daniel. Although we could learn some things from Daniel, but our salvation does not rest in our ability to be like Daniel. Our salvation rests in the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ and His righteousness that has been put upon us and our sin that has been put upon him trust in Christ today not in Daniel trust in Christ and his perfection in this crazy world and it is a crazy world that is full of trials and tribulations that is where our peace and our comfort rest not in ourselves not in our works not in our goodness not in our own integrity but in Christ Jesus in his perfection. And so we're reminded this this morning as we gather around this table that our life is bound up in Jesus Christ. Our hope is bound up in Jesus Christ. Our perfection is bound up in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. As we gather around this table, may your heart be full of praise and thanksgiving as you reflect on what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for our few moments together this morning in the book of Daniel. As we gather around this table today, what an amazing way it is, I think, to end Daniel chapter 6. 
I thank you for the example and the encouragement that we find in Daniel. But that is not my hope. My hope is fixed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so, Lord, for all those who know you today, may this be a time of great worship and celebration around this table this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to take a moment and just read from Romans chapter 6 because I think it helps us think differently about communion and about what our unity with Christ means. And so just allow me, bear with me. What shall we say then? Are we, continue, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. For how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. You don't need to be a slave to sin any longer. The power of sin has been broken through the work of Jesus Christ. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he now lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make your body or to make it obey its passions. But, and do not present your members as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. All that is possible because what Christ has done for us.